0: Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Prime Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the firefighter wellness program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primelocity.com UFF to get started. Susan Piver is the New York Times bestselling author of nine books, including The Hard Questions, The Award-Winning How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life, The Wisdom of a Broken Heart, and Start Here Now. Her newest book is The Four Noble Truths of Love. Buddhist Wisdom for Modern Relationships. Susan has an international reputation for being an exceptionally skillful meditation teacher. She's been a student of Buddhism since 1995. She graduated from a Buddhist seminary in 2004 and was authorized to teach meditation in 2005. In 2012, she founded the Open Heart Project, which I can't wait to learn more about. That is the world's largest online-only meditation center. Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast today.
1: Nick, thank you so much for inviting me. I've been looking forward to the conversation.
0: What's the difference between life is suffering and life sucks?
1: (laughs) Well, let's just get right down to it, shall we? That is the key question. And that is the first noble truth of the entire Buddhist path, no matter what tradition you may practice in or or not, is the first words of wisdom uttered by the Buddha upon his attainment of enlightenment where life is suffering. However, it does not mean life sucks, as you you, uh, suggest. The, uh, my understanding is the more accurate translation of the Sanskrit word dukkha is unsatisfying. Life is unsatisfying. And it's because there's nothing to hold on to when we look, you know, uh, just a titch under the surface. Whatever we create, whatever we lose, whatever we long for, whatever we build, whatever we accomplish, it will arise, abide, and dissolve. And the first noble truth is there are no exceptions to that rule. So it's that's painful. That is painful. When we choose, quite understandably, to live as if that truth was not the truth and instead continue to try to create things that are permanent and to think, well, if I accomplish this, I will be that. Nothing is that solid. And it takes a lot of inner work and bravery, perhaps especially, to reconcile with that.
0: The health benefits of meditation are widely known and proven. So why aren't more people meditating? (laughs)
1: I'll tell you this: the the meditation instructor's secret that we don't like to tell people, which is because at some point, meditation becomes very hard and very boring. And there is anyone who tells you otherwise, you could maybe excuse yourself and leave the room because it's not, it becomes very hard to tell. Is this good? Is this working? Am I doing it right? All of those questions, by the way, are totally irrelevant, but they're also completely understandable. So at some point we we have been trained and continue to train ourselves to game everything we can, game my relationships, to be happy, not for any bad reasons. I gotta game life so that I can get ahead. I've got to game my body so that I can st- stay healthy. I've got to game, you know, other people so they'll like me. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. But our at this point, our conventional mind is running the show. And we're trying to become something and improve something and accomplish something. And those things are fine. I'm not saying otherwise. But through consistent meditation practice you see that those games are all air they're just not real and the it's like you and i were talking a moment ago about the the keto diet and related things and it's like there's a difference between ketosis and being fat adapted and it's the same thing with you you start meditating and maybe you feel calmer maybe you find some insights all of which is great but then there's this bardo period between that initial oh this could be cool and becoming meditation adapted where your mind the way your mind works in the world the way you are in the world becomes adapted to the a life where you know there's nothing you can hold on to that adaptation period can take a minute if you're a future Buddha or years.
0: I love that. Meditation adapted. I've never heard that term before. I never
1: said yeah. it. I just made it up.
0: <laughs> now, how do you help people understand that it's not about being the world's best follower of breath or number one reciter of mantras and what it's really about?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. I appreciate your questions. I can't help. I, my instruction when I was trained as a teacher was the best instruction, I think, which is don't teach anyone anything help them to discover something, because the real teacher is your own intelligence, your own wisdom, and most meditation practices, many of which are quite wonderful, really take a self-improvement or self-help tack, like do this so that you can be, have less physical pain, that's a great thing. So you can be a better leader, that's a great thing. But that application of meditation is very limited because at some point, all the magic drains from the practice when you apply an agenda to it. And that is a very confounding thing for most of us. We don't do anything without an agenda. And it's good to have agendas. Yeah. But when you think I'm gonna meditate in order to fix myself, or improve myself, the true benefits hide under a rock. But when you sit just to sit and just to experience and just to be, sometimes that feels wonderful, sometimes it feels horrible, sometimes it's mostly it's very boring. But when you agree to sit with just what is, which is not a woo-woo thing, that's actually a gesture of extreme bravery, your wisdom mind like, oh, I just got an invitation to the party. And we don't know what that's gonna look like. So it looks different for everyone, but your own intelligence, your true intelligence, your true nature, as a a Buddha would say, has space to assert itself, to be heard, to be seen. So the more we meditate from a self-help perspective, the more we actually propel ourselves in the opposite direction than meditation as a spiritual practice. I don't mean woo-woo, I don't mean religious, I don't mean anything like that, but as a practice of transformation as opposed to improvement. So self-help starts with the idea that there's something wrong with you. We need to fix it. And just speaking personally, if you had all day, I could list half the things that were wrong with me that I'd like to fix. But meditation is not in that ballpark. Meditation especially from the Buddhist perspective, as I understand it, starts with the idea that there is nothing wrong with you. Mm. Absolutely nothing. You're whole, you're intact, you're fully worthy. And any notions to the contrary are manifestations of confusion. And we want the confusion to diminish so that you can see what's there. I mean, I think of it as like a snow globe, Hmm. You know, our our mind is full of thoughts and we're shaking it all day long. I like this. I don't like that. That didn't work. That did work. You know, reasonable things. We're human beings living on planet Earth. We have to have those thoughts. But we're shaking it all day long, all day long and thinking, well, one of those snowflakes is going to be the one. Let me just keep parsing them. But in meditation, you're like, I'm putting the MF snow globe down. And all the snowflakes are going to melt to the surface. And then there's going to be something clear. And I don't know what it is, but I'd really like to see it.
0: We may not need fixing. There's always something to be found, right? It's like we're seeking how to fix something, but really we need to just find it. So not not seek some end game, but seek what we find.
1: That is a very interesting distinction. Seek what we find. Yeah. And to find requires not knowing what's there. To begin with, usually we come in thinking, well, this is my problem. So that's what I'm going to work on. But to find who you are, what is going on? It some receptivity is necessary, some space, some silence, some curiosity. And those are hard qualities for us to reconcile with.
0: And do you do credit meditation for being awake in this moment? And what does this really mean? Like to be awake?
1: That's a fantastic question, once again. Uh, The honest answer is, I don't know, because I am awake sometimes and not other times. So my sense is awake is not an accomplishment. Like I have crossed the line from asleep to awake, and now I'm going to sit here or stay here. Rather, it's more to be equated with present, And I I hesitate to use the word non-attached because I get such a bad rap, which I would love to explore with you if you're interested, but there's some sense of now, 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 now. So in the Buddhist view, as I was trained, waking up is not about going, wake up or see more clearly or try harder. It's actually the opposite. It means letting go, constantly letting go, of this idea, of this moment, of this hope, of this fear, to relax. And by relax, obviously, I don't mean watch television on the couch, much as I do enjoy that, but something more like allow. So awakefulness and allowing are more synonymous than awake and alert, for example.
0: And we've all heard it's dangerous to wake sleepwalkers. What has your experience been like helping people wake up? Are they grateful or scared or something different?
1: I would never say I've helped anyone wake up. I'm not trying to be humble or disingenuous. I would just say that the work of a meditation teacher is to point out you're already awake. Not by explaining it. But by saying, why don't you sit here on this cushion next to me or chair and let's examine our minds, not by thinking about them or manipulating them, but by allowing them to rest. What is our experience when we let our minds rest? And in the case of the meditation I teach and most meditation practices, the object of rest is the breath. So what happens? So I, what I have seen time and again, and I've been, as you said, I've been a meditator for 27 years, I think now, 25. Actually, I started 27 years ago, but I formally became a Buddhist 25 years ago. And as a teacher, is the, the technique, the meditation practice itself, as it is, the simplest thing in the entire world, literally, sitting, breathing, being yourself, you, you cannot remove anything from that equation. Wakefulness reveals itself. That I can promise, Uh, but you have to do it.
0: The awakened mind reveals itself when it's patient and confident, kind and wise. And Bruce Lee said that patience isn't passive, it's concentrated strength. Why is patience the obvious metric that our practice is working?
1: Uh, That's interesting. So I would say it's certainly a metric, but it's not, it goes beyond uh, forbearance because you can be super impatient and angry and frustrated and disappointed and patient with that. That's fantastic. That's great. So it doesn't mean you have to be all zen or placid or or anything. You can be anything. You can be all the things. You can be fully human on the meditation cushion. In fact, that is encouraged. But you can be patient with your impatient. You can be unafraid of your fear. You can be confident that you feel no confidence right now. You can be attuned to your, the presence of wisdom or the lack of wisdom. And that itself is wisdom. So it's, it's much more forgiving and spacious. And, and patience, by the way, as is, is one of the, in the Vajrayana Buddhist world, the Mahayana Buddhist world, is one of what's called the six paramitas, or transcendent actions, or six perfections they're sometimes called. The first one is generosity, the second one is discipline, the third one is patience. And the formula for patience, by the way, in this view is, and it's so great, is having no expectations. Boom. I have no expectations. In the moments when I've been able to glimpse that possibility, I see that the only thing that remains is patience, because I don't have expectations. And that is the formula, impossible to achieve, but absolutely mesmerizing formula for patients.
0: I love that formula. And there is no wrong way to meditate as long as how you say it stabilizes the mind. What are some uncommon ways of meditating that you found to work for you? For example, I think reading and hiking and even like staring into a fire work for me. What about Mm -hmm. for you?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... What I would say is, meditation is a technique and it involves, in my case, sitting in a particular posture, just normal, cross legged, letting attention rest on the breath, letting your mind be as it is. When your mind strays, you notice that, oh, that's interesting, and you bring it back. I would say that is meditation. The other things, hiking, running, some people, for some people, cooking, yoga practices, I would call meditative and the thing that all of these practices have in common is they do what's called synchronize mind and body because usually our mind is going one way and our body is going the other you know that obviously many people have this issue i think i had it last night my body wants to lie down and go to sleep but my mind is trying to answer emails or you know they're just not in the same place you're you're walking on the beach but your mind is in an apartment in New York city or something. So hiking and running and other things making out, these are things that bring mind and body into the same place. My mind is on what my body's doing and my body is engaged with what's happening in my mind, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it because they're not two different things. So anything that synchronizes mind and body tends to be relaxing. Even if what you're doing is very intense and difficult, like you're working on some super intense math problem, but your mind and body are right there, you're not relaxed, like chill, but you're absorbed. And in the Buddhist view, as I was taught, all stress, all anxiety stems from the moment mind and body split. So when we bring them together, anxiety and stress are at least reduced. So, but the main point I want to make is to me in my world, I am a very traditional practitioner, a meditation teacher. There's meditation. And then there are things that are meditative because they synchronize mind and body.
0: So do you meditate the the same practice every day, same time, same place?
1: No, my practice is largely the same, but I, I again, I'm, I'm on a very traditional buddhist path in the tibetan tradition so i have done all these various practices mantras and visualizations and so on but just the basic show i call shamatha vipassana meditation mindfulness awareness meditation that is always the foundational practice and that is all o- that is my favorite practice and that is the most simple and the most difficult practice so I, I, I'm not a particularly disciplined person in, a, in the way that your question suggests. I wish I was, I, I've tried so hard, uh, but I find that I meditate. Sometimes it's at this time, sometimes it's at that time. Sometimes I don't meditate, but it's been 27 years. And even though I am rarely perfect, I've learned to trust myself that my connection to the practice, which is impossible without the formal practice. Also I teach people how to teach meditation. I, if I'm not meditating, then I'm a straight up liar. Um, so the practice, I'm not saying is not of central importance because it is the most important thing, but there's also a commitment to practice and to the inner life and to the journey that, I know is unflagging for myself even during those times where my formal practice is stronger or weaker that is unflagging and i love to go on retreats that's that's my favorite way of practicing
0: and you teach people to meditate with their eyes open is this preparing you for a real world application because you don't go about everyday life with your eyes closed
1: <laughs> yes the answer to that question is why yes so yeah eyes closed practices eyes open practices they're both good eyes closed practice however there can be a sense of withdrawing and sometimes that is just the thing i mean we all need to withdraw but when you open your eyes when the meditation is over then you have to come back and there can be just as you suggest more of a divide between your meditation practice and your post-meditation practice, which is what meditators call the rest of your life, there's a sense of I've left my meditative equanimity on the cushion, and when I wanna get it back, I have to go back there, Uh, because I can't, as you say, I can't just walk around my life and close my eyes anytime I wanna find my mindfulness. It's also, by the way, much more likely that you'll fall asleep if you meditate with your eyes closed, and we're all so tired, so. But when you meditate with your eyes open, when the meditation is over, you don't have to come back because you never went anywhere. And there is less of a divide between your post-meditation practice and your meditation practice. And the whole idea of the practice is to be somewhere, not to not try to get somewhere, but to learn how to be somewhere. And also, additionally, of equal, if not greater importance, we meditate not to be more awesome but to be of more benefit mm. to this world. So that requires a connection and a willingness to be in the world, not withdrawn from it. So when your eyes are open or your or when your ears are tuned to your hearing, if you're visually impaired, there's a sense of my practice and myself, we are connected to this world. We're not trying to get out of this world or transcend to another realm or escape actually like it's a warrior's gesture i'm i'm here y'all and i'm connecting my mind with my world because i want to help and i also want to feel better
0: i think about this a lot how to make cushion calm more portable because when you're a firefighter and you pull up to a house fire, cushion calm doesn't necessarily translate, but yeah. maybe your breath will be a little bit more controlled than it would have otherwise, or maybe you will have a little more control over the stress response. It's it's practical.
1: As you said earlier, we're not meditating to be good at meditating. Like if you were the world's best follower of the breath, that would be cool but not that cool but we meditate with the breath with the eyes open so that when you go into your life whatever is happening you can med you can be with that so we're not trying to be breath aware as we go about our daily life we're practicing with the breath as an object of meditation so that when we get off the cushion we can substitute other things for that object mm-hmm. i practice with the breath so now i can practice with your voice and now i can practice with this agitation i feel because i have to tell some someone something hard and now i can practice with uh, appreciating this the beautiful thing or this horrible thing that's going on and if i was a firefighter which i'm not i would then be able to place my attention because i practice so steadily with the breath i can place my attention on the our intensity the danger the need the what what can i do what should i do i can place my attention on what's actually happening and i can't think of a situation that would require more presence of mind than fighting a fire so in the on the cushion we're cultivating that presence of mind so that we can then translate it into the other experiences of our life
0: And then should we take the time to practice with other people?
1: Uh, It depends on the meditator, but I would say for most people, yeah. And not because, I don't know why exactly. I, I can tell you the traditional reason why. There are three things that we need to make our meditation practice sustainable. And we usually only bring in two, two of the three. And the first one is to develop some confidence in your own wakefulness. If you have no confidence in your wakefulness, then it's very plastic, the experience of meditating. And you don't sit down going, I will be confident. You discover the confidence by noticing that you are awake through the practice of meditation. So that first piece, wakefulness, connecting to your wakefulness, that happens automatically when you sit down to meditate, even if you thought 100 million thoughts or minus 100 million thoughts, doesn't matter. And then the second piece that we all need is some sense of connecting to the what I call the path quality of what happens when a meditation practice is under, commences. Because you start to change. Something is initiated. Some kind of journey begins. And to contemplate it by just thinking about it or journaling about it or read book about it or watch a video about what is happening here, that is also really important to keep the meditation practice meaningful because otherwise you get in a closed loop with your mind and it just starts to become claustrophobic but when you really see oh something's happening it becomes more you become more engaged in the practice so most people can figure out those two things but the third piece is community and i hated that when i realized that because i'm very solitary person and I like to be by myself, but I notice that when I practice with others, if it's on a retreat or just, I don't know, go to a meditation center back when we used to go out of our houses, um, something clicks in, something, something holds me in place, and something is buoyant, something uplifts me when I practice with others. And... I can't explain why that is, but everybody who's practiced in a room with other people, I'm sure, has some sense of what I'm talking about. But we have this idea as Westerners that I should just be able to go in that room, you sit down, young man, young woman, young person, and you don't get up for 10 minutes or 30 minutes. That's not enough. We need the companionship of others, whether it's virtual or not, to click the practice into place. In the Buddhist world, these are called the three jewels. And I, I didn't make them up. They're they're considered the, the the jewels of the spiritual journey. Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Buddha, Dharma, and community. We need all three. And nobody has to be a formal Buddhist or do any Buddhisty things to have a community. You just could sit with other people. And that's that's what that's probably the main reason I, I created the Open Heart Project to provide all three jewels. There's a teacher and teachings, there's a way to explore the path that is non- dogmatic and non-Buddhist just normal and then there are other people and I appreciate you saying that is the largest completely virtual mindfulness community in the world but I do want to say that it is also the only completely virtual mindfulness community in the world so just you know to be fair
0: now mindfulness teaches us how to shift our relationships to thoughts, not to change the thoughts themselves. How do we keep this dichotomy of control up front in daily consciousness and change the way our mind reacts to events and thoughts outside of our control?
1: Well, the first is to try to abandon the question of how do I change this? And how do I abandon that? Because then your mind, your conventional mind is telling another part of your conventional mind, stop that. And that, Has very limited use, I would say. So I just point again to the quality of relaxing and allowing. You know, this is a a very underrated skill, but to me, it's the ultimate superpower, and it's called receptivity. And even though we just met you and I, Nick, and people who are listening, I don't know you, but hello to you. I know that we all that we all value the same things. We all want the same things. We want love we want wisdom and insight creativity innovation uh these are the things that we really value and all of those things have one thing in common you can't go out and get those things you can only invite those things you can only those are not things that you achieve they are things that arise when you allow them to, when you create space. So they're predicated on receptivity. And you know, it's, it's no mystery that some of the world's greatest insights and inventions have come to people who are sleeping or you know taking a shower because there's some sense of openness or relaxation or I'm not trying, oh, poof, something arose. So trusting that trusting that and 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 mind because it is trustworthy and mindfulness is not the way to do that so meditation as we know and you've suggested a couple of times is often called mindfulness and that that is accurate but it is only 50% accurate the mindfulness piece is in the case of most meditations i'm going to place my attention on an object such as my breath And I'm going to hold it there. And when it strays, I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm just going to come back over and over again. I'm going to cultivate focus, concentration, one-pointedness. That is mindfulness. I can place my mind on the object of my choosing and hold it there. And when it scurries off, I can bring it back. Fabulous. But from that cultivation of mindfulness, a second quality arises organically and it includes things like oh i see things i hadn't seen before oh there's a i'm noticing patterns in my experience or my world or oh, i just had an idea i my sense perceptions are getting sharper that's called awareness my awareness expands so mindfulness you can work at like get out your hammer and your nail and just keep chipping away at it try harder it will pay off Awareness, you can't work at. You can only allow. So meditation practice is more accurately called mindfulness awareness meditation. They are inseparable. Mindfulness piece we can work at. That's why I'd say in our largely uh, masculine view world, doesn't have anything to do with being a man or a woman or, or neither or both, but that's the part that gets the most attention because I can work at that. I can schedule that. I can time it. I can game it. I can biohack it. I can do all these things. God bless. Fabulous. Do it. The other piece, the better, more important piece, the part that we actually really long for, you can't work at it. You can only allow it. And that is something that many people feel uncomfortable with, understandably. And we're like, how do you do that? Oh, let me work at allowing. Well, no, that you can't do that either. So that's where the spiritual aspect comes in I would say.
0: How has this 25 or 27 years of practicing made you more compassionate inwardly and outwardly?
1: I'm pleased to say it. I believe that it has. My mother <laughs> tells me all the time you're so much nicer since you became a Buddhist. So that's there's the proof and the pudding right there. Well when you sit down to meditate the first thing that you do is soften. You soften toward yourself oh, there was a thought, oh, now I was distracted, oh, look, uh, I came back to my breath, oh, I'm grumpy right now, oh, look, I am I feel something beautiful, I feel something vicious, whatever it is, you soften, you stay in the flow of what you're experiencing. That's called softening. You're not trying to strong arm yourself to be really nice or really bold or whatever it is. Instead, you're just seeing, you're, you soften. Hmm. And when you soften toward yourself like this, the implications are inexpressible so a wall comes down and when the wall comes down anything can come in and does so you see first well everyone's got this wall so you, you sort of feel for them but from planting the seeds of feeling for yourself which just means noticing yourself and being with yourself organically it seems the way we're wired and this the whole practice of loving kindness is predicated on this wiring you naturally feel more kindly disposed towards others. You actually become more vulnerable. So when people like Brene Brown talk about the power of vulnerability, to me, this is what is meant by that. It's a gesture of extreme courage. It's extremely brave to let that wall come down and to walk into the world unarmored. When your armor is on, you can't feel. When your armor is on, you can't sense. your armor is on you can't connect so the first thing that, that the warrior has to do that the person committed to compassion does is take the armor off that's terrifying and then then what then what that's a question to ask yourself
0: so we're learning to be vulnerable and we're learning to be more compassionate. Now that we've talked about meditation and the foundation for self-love, let's talk about combining two happy people. The Buddhist path is built around the Four Noble Truths. So why does this same sequence work in our love lives as well?
1: Yeah, it it's interesting. I didn't know if it did, but then I started thinking about it and you know, like 10 years ago and I see, yeah, it actually does. So the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, our life is suffering or uh, unsatisfying because everything changes. The second noble truth is called the cause of suffering, which is, in this case, grasping or pretending the first noble truth isn't true. The third noble truth is called the cessation of suffering, which kind of means it hurts when I go like this. Okay, don't go like that. You know, if grasping is the because i We'll stop grasping. Obviously, easier said than done. The fourth noble truth is called the, the eightfold path. How do you stop doing that? Right view, right intention, right speech, and so on. so, at one point in my own marriage, now long marriage twenty one years, I was like, "This sucks. <laughs> we don't like each other, and we're just fighting all the time, and it went on for months and months, and it was I didn't know what was going on. there was nothing to fight about, but we just didn't like each other, and it was terrible and one day, I was sitting at my desk crying, thinking. I I, would, I don't know where to begin fixing this and I, like I, my next thought was well begin at the beginning and at the beginning are four noble truths and my next thought was oh cool and my next next thought was what <laughs> how, how does that work how does life is suffering and grasping and all that so I began contemplating what would the four noble truths of love be the first is the statement of the problem life is suffering in the case of the four Noble Truths of the Buddhism of Buddhism. In the case of relationships, I saw that the first noble truth was relationships never stabilize. They just don't. They don't. It's actually uncomfortable. Uh in all the phases. Before you even meet, it's uncomfortable. Oh, what if they don't like me? And then all the way up until you you know your heart is broken or you're in a 20-year relationship and there's just these various irritations that never go away. It's it never stabilizes. That's truth number one. Truth number two is thinking it should be stable actually creates a lot of the instability because our eye is often trained on who we wish the other person was rather than who they are. That creates a lot of problems unless, and this is a big caveat, the problems or the instability stem from abuse or addiction. Those are different categories not included here because I always want to say that because I don't want anyone to think some Buddhist lady told me that I should accept the instability, but when it's related to abuse or addiction, it's a different story. And then the third noble truth is meeting the instability together, riding the instability. Like you notice your breath in meditation. If as partners you notice, oh, look, we like each other now, or we don't like each other, or I like you, but you don't like me, or we're distant, we're close, of seeing it, feeling it like sort of holding hands, locking eyes, being on the ride together. To me, that's, that's a great relationship, not one that feels good all the time, which nobody thinks that, but someone who'll be on the ride with you. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then the fourth noble truth is how do you do it? And I write about these four different steps that you can take in, in the book about, well, how do you actually do that if you think it sounds reasonable?
0: So say we didn't know that we needed to ride the instability together and the relationship ended in heartbreak, real soul crushing heartbreak. How do we realize that it's our thoughts that are killing us and not a broken heart?
1: Yeah. Well, I did write a book called The Wisdom of a Broken Heart, which as I was so interested in the question you just asked from my own heartbreak, like what the hell? This nobody nobody said anything about this soul crushing pain, as you mentioned how heartbreak is horrible. There's no two ways about it. It's if anybody listening has is in the middle of a broken heart, my heart goes out to you. But it, 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 there's this bizarre opportunity unbidden because when your heart is broken, you have no more game. You, You can't game anything. You can't, all you do is you cry, you feel, you have nightmares, you can't eat, you are an angry, you can't change it. So that is very interesting. The circumstances of our life that we find ourselves in that we can't game are horrible, I'm not saying otherwise. But there's also this opportunity to see, well, actually, I can't control this, I can only be with it, which is at the foundation of the spiritual journey altogether. So it's like you're forced onto the spiritual path um, in some way, that's what I would say. Meditation can be helpful or not. It can actually be harmful because I know there's this idea that, oh, meditation fixes everything, but in extreme cases of extreme emotion and certainly of trauma, it can actually make it worse. It's not a panacea and everybody should be very gentle with themselves and especially in a heartbroken situation because meditation amplifies your inner experience. It does not quell it or quiet it. Um, So certain things happen when you are heartbroken that are interesting as well as deeply painful. And one is that you feel everything. Your feelings are like you can't game them. Like I say, you feel all the feels but not only your own feelings, you feel everyone else's feelings. It's like some wall is gone. And when you're happy, I feel it. And when you're unhappy, I feel it. And I just attuned to the world of feeling in a completely different way. And I, I wish it wasn't so, but so it is. And then you think, you know, whatever I thought was important before, not important yeah sure i want to have money and a good job and live someplace nice and accomplish all these goals and those things are great but actually none of it matters without love it it becomes very clear that love is is by far the most important thing and all you can do is be present you cannot escape it's so horrible and weird but if you've ever contemplated or heard anything about the path of the Bodhisattva or the awakened being, the person who helps bring more sanity to the world, they feel everything. If you look, think about the great teachers, like the Dalai Lamas of the world, my belief is they feel that uh, broken open heart thing all the time. But unlike me, they're not opening it and closing it. They've somehow stabilized in the open state. I don't know how. Feeling everything, Absolute certainty that love is the most important thing and the way we treat each other is the main thing that matters. And I'm right here, right here. Those are the qualities of bodhisattva, of a awakened being. So we did not ask for it, but when our hearts are broken, we find those are the shoes we stand in. So in addition to support from therapists and friends and lots and lots of crying and raging, some contemplation of this opening is very instructive.
0: Yeah, I can't remember who who said it, but they said, "Feel the feelings, drop the story."
1: Pema Children is the one who said it.
0: That's like wisdom for life in general, in in just six words.
1: I mean, that's like my whole book, The Wisdom of a Broken Heart, in six words. That that's that's everything. That feel the feeling and drop the story. It, it it's I so appreciate you mentioning that
0: it's my understanding that Buddhism says we should see the world as it is and not as it should be. So how does this apply to the way we see our marriage and our journeys together?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, there's there's a a little, and I'm not saying that you are saying this, but in the question itself, there's a little quality of aggression and self aggression. Like, you shouldn't do this, you should do that. How do I do that? Okay. That's a reasonable question, but that answer is not going to come from any form of aggression. So you could start by just experiencing what it is you're doing right now. Am I seeing what I want to see? Am I seeing what is? I don't know. Let me examine my, let me be curious. Let me examine my experience. I'm not sure. Oh, I'll keep examining. That curiosity, in addition to vulnerability, that, those are the superpower qualities that propel the spiritual path because when you're curious you're open you're open your 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 mind is like is not saying i know let me explain it to you which is always pretty untrustworthy hmm. but let me see let me see let me see i'm interested i'm curious not i'm happy or i feel good or i feel bad i'm just i feel bad well that's very interesting what's happening there i feel good hmm, let me check that out that's brave. And that initiates a process of true inquiry, not I'm asking because I'm looking for a particular answer. How do I get to be this? Well, we don't know what this is. Start with how, who am I right now? And all things stem from that.
0: Can you talk to me about the importance of focusing on the tiny courtesies and not the over-the-top romantic gestures? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mentioned in 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 the four noble truths of love, I some qualities that you could use to propel this point of view in your own relationship if you want. And and there's two foundational qualities that without them, you're not in a relationship. You could be in a fabulous love affair. Love affairs and relationships are not the same. Nobody tells us this, but we think our love affairs should become relationships and our relationships should remain love affairs. But the truth is that's, that's unusual. So just like if you're not placing attention on breath and letting your mind be as it is when you're meditating, you may be doing something quite interesting, but you're not meditating. Those are foundational. You have to have those in a relationship. The uh, concomitant, is that a word qualities are uh, you have to know how to be honest and and that doesn't mean blurt things obviously it means know the truth know yourself and then be uh discerning about what you say if you if you can't be honest or you're with someone who can't who just be, and they don't know what, what the truth is then again you can have a kick-ass love affair but maybe not a relationship and then the second quality is good manners and i don't mean you know folding your napkin this way or that obviously i mean i think about you and I wonder about how you're feeling. And then I, in my actions, I apply that wondering to be thoughtful about who you are and what you need and where you are and where we are. So again, if you're with someone who won't think about you, i.e. have good manners, be thoughtful, then great love affair, maybe, but not so good for a relationship.
0: And I'd love to know more about what you meant when you said, I no longer have any idea if I love my husband or not. I can't imagine what the feelings I have for him could be called. I've even given up trying to love him. Our relationship is what gives us love, not the other way around.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate you highlighting that. Yeah. I mean, obviously when we fell in love a long time ago, I loved him and I still love him. Something happens at a certain point, And this, this is a transition point in relationships that I find rarely spoken about, I would love if more people would address it. it, is when the the life of two becomes the life of one. It's not like we're sharing the same life and I am very independent and lonery and he leaves me alone a lot and otherwise we wouldn't be together. But at some point I realized we were having an argument about something or other. And I'm like, well, I'm gonna leave. But then my next thought was, I can't. My life is so inextricably bound, not just with his, but with this, with the relationship, that I, I might be trapped. And, and I, I, that sounds terrible, but there's a sense of we have built something sort of breath by breath, kiss by kiss, fight by fight, reconciliation by reconciliation that has become my world. And I didn't see it coming. And we're not living two concurrent lives. We're two people in a kind of a single life, which he loves, he's very relational. I find very potentially claustrophobic and and upsetting. Nonetheless, it's, it's so. And so when I think, how do I feel about this guy? Sometimes I really love him and I appreciate him and sometimes I'm like, oh my God, he's such an asshole or I, I, I really don't want anything to do with him or who is that guy? I, don't, I thought I knew him, but I don't think I do. All of that is constantly swirling. And if I look to my own heart for the f- sort of fuel for the relationship, I would come up short because I'm just a person with limited everything but when I look at what we have created together this sort of universe this world where I really know him even though sometimes he seems like a stranger and oh my god he really knows me and it's that deep knowing and the sort of commitment I guess to know more even when it's uncomfortable barring abuse or addiction which are not part of our relationship at this moment or to this date hopefully never will be mm-hmm. that's what feels like living in love living in this knowing and this connecting that is goes up and down and bumpy and beautiful and dull and exciting and all the things that's what gives us i would say the f- impetus the strength the fuel the the meaning that makes it keep going.
0: That's so powerful. Yeah, I think that is a great place to kind of wrap this up. Just a couple of questions that I ask everybody at the end of the podcast, Susan. If you'd be so kind as to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now?
1: Oh my God, yeah. I am reading, sounds horrible. I mean, not horrible, but I'm reading this very powerful book called What, the, what We Can Learn From The Germans, which is how Germany reconciled with its or is still reconciling with its history of violence. And it's very instructive as for me in America, like what could we do as a culture? So that that's that's very powerful. And I'm reading for like the 10th time two, two other books. One is The Heart of Unconditional Love by the aforementioned Tulku Tunda Rinpoche, which is the most profound overview of loving kindness as a fully transformational Vajrayana practice rather than a way to be nice, it's like, oh my god, the incredible power of loving kindness, which has nothing to do with being nice and everything to do with being real. And then I'm also reading Shambhala the Sacred Path of the Warrior by Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche because I'm co-teaching a class on that book and I've read it a million times over the past 25 years. And there's one thing I've discovered about that book, it's you can only read it for the first time because every time you open it, it is completely fresh.
0: Wow. Well, thank you for sharing those. I'll have to check those out. And then last question, if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why?
1: You know, I think it might be the poet Rilke, because he's a a very famously withdrawn person who I love his poetry and his writings, and very few are admitted to his inner sanctum. And I would love to visit that sanctum and say, how did you remain so connected to your voice? I would love that.
0: I love that answer. Okay, Susan. So tell me more about the Open Heart Project for those who want to get involved.
1: Yeah, thank you for asking. The Open Heart Project is an online meditation community. It's not an app, it's a community. And at the same time, we leave you alone. So if you don't want to interact with others, you do not have to, but it's uh, every week we explore a theme. I sent make a video and send out a little talk on that theme. Every in the same week, a different teacher, not myself, from a really intensely wonderful teacher, uh leads a 45-minute conversation also about that theme. So you get to hear different perspectives on it. We have online retreats for all virtual. They always has been virtual since 2012. And uh we have special gatherings like we had loving kindness meditation for the united states on november 4th the day after the election i think it still is november 4th i'm not sure this day will ever end um and there are you can join a group within the open heart project sangha so you have a peer peer gathering once a week with fellow practitioners to just share how it's going and practice together and we have so many things book clubs and uh guest teachers giving talks on things like the heart sutra and protector principle and it's a whole amazing center and you can do what you want and not do the rest
0: awesome so they can go to openheartproject.com if they want to learn more about you they can go to su- susanpiver.com you are on social on instagram at susan.piver and i'll have links to all your books in the show notes where else do you want people to go to connect with you
1: no those are the perfect places thank you for mentioning them
0: Okay, Susan. Thank you so much for the conversation. This this was just great. I loved it.
1: Thank you. I did too, Nick. I really appreciate it.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy, and if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikova.